think one of the first times I came over here, I was just starting my private practice. That was 20 years ago. So there had been some water under the bridge. I think I probably was skinny and had a hair. And, but I'm, I'm glad to be here. If you have your Bibles, we're going to look a little bit in, in the book of Exodus for just a, a little bit. Um, back in the spring, I was doing some running. Well, that's a loose term. I was jogging some. And I like to listen to books while I jog. Um, I'm not currently jogging. Uh, I was in Orlando, and uh, my leg started tingling, and then my leg started burning. Then my leg felt like they were hitting me with a belt sander and driving a nail into it, and I had some little tiny thing wrong with a disc in my back and had to have a microsurgery, is what they call it, a microdiscectomy. And then two weeks after that, Jackie had her second hip replacement. So this spring, uh, her mom came and stayed with us because I couldn't bend over and lift anything, and she couldn't move. And so her mom is a retired nurse. So this spring, our house looked like a nursing home. We, we had a, a walker, those blue pillows that are shaped like triangles, and walking sticks and, and, and crutches, and a 72-year-old nurse roaming the hall. It would have really been an interesting spring. But while I was running, I was listening to uh, a book called The Talent Code, and The Talent Code mentioned, and, and I'll just chase this rabbit, there wasn't one artist, in the Renaissance, there were 30. There's not one phenomenal soccer player from Brazil. There's 150. There's not one incredible female Korean golfer. There's 75. And you find these pockets of talent all over the place. And it seems like this school will produce a nest. And this country will produce a nest. And so looking at the talent code, it's interesting that in the talent code, it says that, that you learn this huge set of skills. They call it learning in the macro. And then once you, like you're going to play the piano, which I, I don't know why I'm using that as an example because I can't play one. But you'd play the entire piece as best as you could. And then you'd focus on your mistakes, what you did wrong. You learn how to fix it. And then you do what they call deep practice. And that's what they're talking about for, for training these athletes and training these performers. They talk about myelination of the nerves and it takes 10,000 hours to master anything. I found it really interesting that Paul says all scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for teaching the macro for correcting or, or for rebuking what you're doing wrong for correcting. This is how you fix it and then for continued instruction in righteousness. That talent code formula was God's, how he teaches people to live. Anyway, I was reading the talent code, and they started talking about this lady named Carol Dweck, D-W-E-C-K, Carol Dweck. And she has this book called Mindset. And I began listening to Mindset. And the interesting thing about her book is that she says there are a belief that people come into the planet with a fixed set of intelligence. When I was in grad school, they taught us that IQ was fixed. If you have a 92 IQ, practice. Would you like fries with that? You know, it was just one of those things that if you had, if we're born with this IQ, you kept it. And the people believe you have a certain amount of talent, you have a certain amount of IQ, and, and they began to challenge that notion. In fact, uh, Dr. Benet who helped develop the Stanford-Binet intelligence test, 
developed that test to prove neuroplasticity of the brain. You, you could in, improve your IQ. You could change it. But she said that, that people come into the world and you'll either have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And a fixed mindset are the people who believe they're smart, gifted, and talented. And they don't do anything that threatens that. If you give this group of kids a test and this group of kids, and it's the same test, and you don't really tell them the truth about what they made on it, you tell everybody you made 8 out of 10. And you tell this group of kids, hey, you made 8 out of 10 on that test, you must be smart. And you tell this group of kids, you made 8 out of 10 on that test, you must have worked really hard. You've created a fixed mindset here and a growth mindset here. And the children with a fixed mindset, you'll ask them, would you like to see the test of other students? Yes, yes. Would you like to see students who did better than you or worse than you? Guess what they want to see? Somebody who did worse because if somebody did better, I'm not smart. These kids want to see tests of somebody who did better so they can learn from it. Would you like to do a, a, another test and would you like to do a test similar to that or harder than that or easier than that? We want to do one similar. These kids always want to do a harder test. Well, we don't have time for you to take another test, so uh, we're going to ask you to write a note to the next group of kids coming in to take the test, tell them something about the test, and tell them what you made. To the person, these students lie about what they made on the test. They always fudge up one point. We made a 9 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10. And you create these fixed mindsets, and then people with a fixed mindset then will avoid things that will, will change their identity. If I feel like I'm gifted, I'm not going to try out for the varsity team because I might not make it. If I think I'm intelligent, I'm, I'm not going to take advanced level algebra because it might prove I'm not smart. And they'll begin to avoid situations that destroy their mindset. People with a growth mindset chase those things and try to help them develop. And I began to think, are there fixed mindsets in the church? I've been a minister since the spring of 1980. I've been in private practice as a therapist since the beginning of 1998. And because I'm a preacher and a counselor, people call me and come to my office. And the wounded and the broken and the hurting people come into my setting. And a majority of the things that I deal with are people who feel like that I'm a second-class citizen in the church. I was born out of wedlock. My parents divorced. I've struggled with addiction. I've had a divorce. I made a baby out of wedlock. I've smoked marijuana. I, and they feel like that for some reason there are second-tier Christians in the church. And I began to think about, could we address the idea of a fixed mindset in the church and change that? And if you read this little book, it's about an 80-page essay. Uh, it talks about three basic groups of mindsets. The, the first one is, I call them the modern Samaritans. The Samaritans in the New Testament weren't Gentiles per se because they had a, a lineage to the Jewish people. Sometimes they were monotheistic, believing in one God. Sometimes they were polytheistic, believing in multiple gods. They built their own temple to God on Mount Gerizim, but the Jews burned it down. The lady talking to Jesus at the well says, hey, I know that when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. They believed in the Messiah, but they weren't allowed in the temple. 
They couldn't worship God in the temple that God had designed for them to worship in. The Samaritan woman, when she's talking to Jesus at the well, doesn't believe God would ask anything from her or accept anything from her. In fact, she's shocked. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask for me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water? And I began to think there are people in the church who don't believe God asks anything from them. There are people in the church who, who for their entire lives have felt for some reason there's just something wrong with me. God doesn't need me. God doesn't want me. God doesn't have any, and I don't mean to be offensive, God doesn't have any stepchildren, and God doesn't have any grandchildren. God just has children. A second group of folks that I've seen in in the New Testament church as I've been ministering for the last 37-something years are Gentile Christians. The Gentiles were these folks who had nothing to do with the law of Moses. We were taught about the patriarchal age, the mosaical age, and the Christian age. That's true in the Bible. The Gentiles never lived in the mosaical age. They were not part of the covenant. They never kept the Sabbath. They never had any rules about clean or unclean meat. They were just free. And then they became Christians, and these Jewish people in the church said, now this is a meat you can eat, and this is a meat you can eat. Do what? They never had to worry about any of that. And when they came into the church because they were unconventional, they had all, half the book of 1 Corinthians is written to getting along with the Gentiles. Romans 14 and 15 is devoted entirely to the Jews believe in this and the Gentiles believe in this, and y'all get together on this. And we've got folks who weren't quote-unquote raised in the church. and They don't pray in Shakespearean English. They might wait on the Lord's table rocking an earring or maybe a tattoo. They may come to church in flip-flops. They might even show up in a pair of shorts. And they feel like that they are the unconventional and, and, and they just don't know all the rules. And they feel like they're on the outside. It's a fixed mindset. And then there's folks in the church that look like the old-fashioned Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. The Pharisees were a meritocracy. They believed they knew how to be righteous and knew all the details and all the intricacies, all the ins and outs, and this is how you dot your I's, and this is how you cross your T's, and this is how you wash your hands. They wrote an 800 line, 800 interpretations of God's law to make sure everybody got it right. They didn't get it right. There were Sadducees in the New Testament times, and they were the meritocracy or the aristocracy. They were wealthy beyond measure. They controlled the temple treasury. They had a lot of influence on who was going to be the high priest. And they felt like that if you were rich, you were righteous. And if you weren't rich, you weren't righteous. And and we've got folks in the church who look at other people and say, you know what, you're you're not really like us. You don't know the details. Um, And again, I don't want to be offensive... These are the guys who are the engineers in the church. And if you're an engineer, I apologize for that. I've, I've got a, I rode back from Colorado for 24 hours in a truck with two electrical engineers. You know what I learned? You cannot shoot yourself with a bow. That's what I learned because I tried. <laughs> it's something about the length of my arms. One of those fellows, is, and he's a good bow hunter and he's sharp, but he said, Lonnie, how many times does your arrow rotate in the length of the air after it leaves the riser of your bow. 
know my errors rotated. <laughs> I said, I don't know, Steve. I said, but I can hit a Mountain Dew bottle at 40 yards with it. Is that all right? But somehow he had this idea that if I didn't know the speed of my error and the rotational values of that thing, I, I couldn't be a bow hunter. And there are folks who think if you don't know what this Greek word means, and if you don't follow our tradition, and if you don't do it the way we do it, you know, God will probably put up with it, but you're just not as good as us. Now, I didn't write that little book to change their minds. I wrote that little book so they wouldn't change your mind about how you feel about you and how you feel about God. The Sadducees the same way. And the Essenes, the Essenes were the separatists. They felt like they were just going to separate themselves out and their kids wouldn't go to anything public and, and they were elitist. And if you dabbled in the world at all, if you went to the public pool or public school, you're going to die and go to blazes. And they tend to judge folks. And, and again, if that's the way you want to live, you can. But in this couple of series, I want to talk about changing the way we see ourselves. And when we interact with those folks, it's not, that we, it's not that they give us the impression that we can't be good. We get the impression we just can't be good enough. Does that resonate with anybody? Okay. Well, let's start with talking about our mindset. And there's two basic mindsets that you have. You either see yourself as a physical person or you see yourself as a spiritual person. Probably not technically accurate. True or false? I do not have a soul. Now, I know Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gained the world and loses his own soul? But look, this statement, you do not have a soul, is that true or false? False. No, it's true. You do not have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. This ain't me. Thank goodness. <laughs> that ain't you. That's a vehicle you're driving. And when we think I am a physical body and I have this soul, no, I'm a soul. I have a body. When somebody dies, they don't become a spirit. They've always been a spirit. It's just been a spirit inhabiting flesh. And if we don't get that right from the beginning, if we don't have a spirit, spiritual self-identity, then we're misdefining everything that's going on in our lives because we're, 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 we're going from the wrong standpoint. We're going from the wrong mindset. So, so let's, let's, let's do it, and this is a weird way to get to it, but we're going to do it. In Exodus chapter 2, a man of the house of Levi went and took as a wife a daughter of Levi, and the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child. She hid him for three months. Now, you jump right into the middle of this story. The children of Israel, Jacob's children, have had 12 sons. Because of a famine, that family, 70 of them or 75, if you read the Septuagint, moved from Canaan into Egypt and while they're in Egypt, that original group of folks begin to populate. And about 400 years later, estimates are they had 4.2 million people living outside of Egypt. The Egyptians were at perpetual war with this group of guys called the Shepherd Kings. Well, guess what every Israelite did for a living? 
They were shepherds. Well, if I'm an Egyptian, and I've got four million people living out here who keep sheep, and the shepherd kings ever band together and declare war on us, who do I think those people are going to side with? Well, that made them nervous. So they began to try to do some population control on the Israelites. Now, it's very important to understand that the, the term Israelite, the term Jew, and the term Hebrew refer to the same group of people. Everybody on the same page with that? And, and one of the sons of Israel was a guy named Levi. So a man of the house of Levi took a daughter from the house of Levi, and they got married and had a baby. If a Hebrew marries a Hebrew, when they have a baby, it's a every single time, okay? That's very important to understand. So the Pharaoh says, hey, if you have these Hebrew babies, you keep the little girls, you put the little boys in the river. This little boy's parents take him and put him in the river. But they put him in a little basket. The, the word is ark. It's used the same word for, for Noah's ark. Put him in the, in the river. He's, he's in the bulrushes in the ark. Probably try to hide him up in there, keep him from the crocodiles and keep him from floating down. The Pharaoh's daughter comes and she's bathing one day and she hears this baby crying and it, it, it touches her. She must be a very young lady. And she draws him out of the river and names him Moshe. It means drawn out. Now, I grew up in Alabama, and I'm just not going to call a man Moshe, so we call him Moses, and let's just get that on the table right now. His name's Moses, I just can't call him Moshe. So she draws Moses out, and she brings this little Hebrew boy up as her own son, and he grows up in the palace. He grows up with the Egyptians. In fact, and you read Stephen's sermon when he talks about Moses, he said Moses was trained in all the wisdom and learning of the Egyptians. I mean, everything the Egyptians knew how to do, Moses was trained in it, knew how to do it. The Egyptians had a mathematical formula for figuring out the surface area of an egg. My high school algebra teacher made us try to solve that. Math is not my strong suit. My brother was the valedictorian of his class, about 19 months older than me, and then I came into her class, and she found out we were brothers. She asked me, was I adopted? <laughs> One of those things. So Moses was trained in all the wisdom and learning of the Egyptians, and, and he's growing up in the Egyptian culture knowing he's a Hebrew. Egyptian versus Hebrew. Physical versus spiritual. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, probably about 40 years old, came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and he looked at their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way, he looked that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting and he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? And then he said to him, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses is going out here and he's looking, he's got this conflict. I'm living like an Egyptian, but I know I'm a Hebrew. And maybe this power I have as an Egyptian adopted prince could help my people. And he sees this Egyptian, this Hebrew fighting, and he looks this way and he looks that way. 
that's premeditation any way you look at it. And he kills this guy. Hides his body in the sand. The second day he goes out, and there's two Hebrew guys fighting, and he decides to intervene. He says, hey, why, why are you beating your, your friend? You're, you're, you're guilty. You're the one who's doing wrong. And the guy says, who made you a prince? Who put you in? I think it's interesting, the word prince. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you did that guy? Well, now he knows his secret is blown. So Moses feared, and he said, surely this thing is known. Now, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. And Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So Moses, regardless of how Pharaoh felt about him, and this may be a different Pharaoh than, than the one that, that had adopted him, but the bottom line is, a non-Egyptian has put his hands on an Egyptian. And that doesn't happen. That's the death penalty. So Moses finds out that Pharaoh knows this, and he, he runs away. Have you ever thought about running away from home? Anybody? You know, people have thought about running away from home. And what do you do? You, you come home because what? You run out of food, you run out of peanut butter and jelly, it gets dark, and you scare the coyotes, and you're by yourself, right? Moses runs away from home. And the first thing he finds is a well. If you run away from home, if you're on the lamb and you can find fresh water, that's a score. So he's out here by himself in the wilderness that later on he's going to lead the, the Israelites through. And what he finds is, is a well, fresh water source. So he sits down by this well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to fill their father's flocks. And the shepherds came down and drove them away. Moses stood up for them and helped them and watered their flock. So Moses has run away from home, and the first thing he finds is fresh water. So he's sitting out here by this well thinking, boy, this is a good find. Man, it's hot in this desert, and I'm here by this fresh water. And out of the wilderness comes seven girls. This running away stuff doesn't sound bad to me. Touchdown Moses, you know. I mean, here he is, and there's seven girls. And what these girls are doing is they bring their flocks in and they pull water out of the well. Water weighs eight pounds to the gallon. They're bringing it up vertically, either with a rope or a windlass. And then they're filling these low troughs because a, stick, a, a, a sheep won't stick his head in a bucket to drink. That's why the psalmist says, my cup runneth over. They won't drink out of a creek. It's making too much noise. You lead me beside still waters. And so these girls every day have to fill these low troughs up so these silly sheep will drink. Well, once they do all the hard work and fill the troughs up with water, the boys, the male shepherds, come scatter their flocks, let their sheep drink, and then they go home and the girls have to do this twice every day. In fact, you'll find out later on that when the girls get home and it's before dark, it really doesn't say dark, their father will say, why are you home early today? Because typically they come in late and they go, why are you girls late? Oh, the shepherds again, the shepherds again, yeah, the shepherds again. Well, Moses is here and he watches this drama play out and he intervenes. He's good at conflict resolution if it involves violence. And so he intervenes, runs these shepherds off and helps these girls refill their troughs of water. And so they go home. Verse 18. And when they came to Ruel, their father... He said, how is it that you've come so soon today? See, he's used to these girls having this issue with the shepherds. And let me just go ahead, and I know your kids are at camp, so we can talk freely. You notice that Ruel didn't go out here and camp out by the well and solve this problem for these girls. These girls are being bullied. Oh, my. 
Ruel says this is the real world, solve it. You didn't cause it, you can't cure it, how do you cope with it? The girls cope with it by filling their troughs every day. Moses coped with it by thumping some heads. But either way, Ruel's not out here micromanaging the lives of his children. He lets them solve some of their own problems. So they get home, Ruel says, hey, why are you home so early today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he drew enough water for us and watered the flock, and he said to his daughters, and where is he? And why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. This guy's got seven daughters. You know why he has seven daughters? He wanted a son to help him with his sheep. And so he had a daughter. And he tried again. (laughs) And he had a daughter. And he tried again. And he had a daughter. And he tried again. Seven times. And now he's found a man. What? You, You met a man? You better get that. You better get him here for supper. One of you has to be lucky enough that he thinks you're pretty and can cook. So get him here right now. And so Moses ends up being his son-in-law and lives with him for 40 years. Now it's interesting if you've got a fixed mindset, Moses is a failure. Moses blew it. Moses is living with the power and the influence of the Egyptian pharaoh and, and he misuses that power and he ends up living for 40 years in the wilderness. Does God need a palace-trained politician, member of the court, to lead people through a wilderness? Or does he need a wilderness expert? And if you can tend sheep in the wilderness for 40 years, you can lead people for 40 years. God needed Moses to go to wilderness school. Moses had not failed. Moses ended up where Moses needed to be. But the part I wanted to, to, to ask you about tonight Did you notice anything funny in this story? Hey, what are you girls doing here so early? An Egyptian delivered us from the hands of of the shepherds. Is Moses an Egyptian? Moses' mother is a... Moses' father is a Hebrew. Moses is a... Why are these girls identifying this absolutely genetically pure... Hebrew man as an Egyptian. Why in the first part of the story does one of his fellow Hebrews say, who made you a prince? It could be Moses doesn't have a tan. If you grew up in the palace, you didn't work out in the sun, you didn't work out in the fields, you didn't do anything, and the aristocracy of their time were very pale skinned. If you read the Song of Solomon... The the female lover will say, my brothers bought a vineyard and they make me work in it and my lover may not find me attractive because I'm darkened by the sun. She wants to be pale. She wants to be beautiful. She wants to be light-skinned. We've changed that in our society. Now we think it's more beautiful to have a tan. But in in this society, it was a sign of aristocracy if you were pale. And so it could be that Moses is just pale and he doesn't look like everybody else does because he's not been working like that. Or it could be that Moses is dressed like an Egyptian. He may be wearing the, the, the bald head, and there's nothing wrong with that. He may have a shaved head, and he may have the gold, and he may be rocking one of those cool snake hats when he's a teenager who worked backwards. You know, I mean, all this crazy stuff. He shows up with these girls, and he's absolutely a Hebrew. But when these people see him, what do they see? They see an Egyptian. 
if we're going to be significant in representing God to this society, they've got to be able to tell whose kids we are. They've got to be able to know whether we're physical people locked into a physical world or whether we're spiritual people living in a physical world. And if they can't tell that, if they can't tell that we're different from them on a fundamental basis, they're never going to ask why we're different. They're never going to be interested in what we do in this building. They're never going to be interested in why we follow this book. Now, Jackie is a school teacher. I'm self-employed, so our schedules are really, really different. And a lot of times in, during the school year, I'll get up and fix breakfast. It's not an elaborate breakfast. I cook to survive, not to entertain. But a lot of times during the school year, I get up and fix breakfast, and we'll eat breakfast together, and Jackie gets ready, and she goes to work, and I work out, and then I go to work. In the summertime, she does not always get up the same time I do. She doesn't always cook breakfast. So sometimes I cook breakfast at Waffle House. <laughs> There's one real close to my office. And so I go into the Waffle House, and I sit there on that little stool, and I eat uh, a steak and cheese omelet, and uh, I was there one morning. My first client was at 9 o'clock, and I'm kind of trying to, to, to rush things up, and I eat through my omelet and drink my little drink there, and, and I get ready to go, so I hop off my stool and, and try to get the little waitress's attention. She walks by me. She comes by me again, and I, she comes by again. And about the third or fourth time she comes by, I go, excuse me, ma'am, I need my ticket. And she looks at me and embarrassed herself. So she said, I didn't realize, and what she started to say was, I didn't realize you'd stood up. Because <laughs> when I sit on a Waffle House stool, I'm about that tall. And when I quit swinging my little feet and I stand up, I'm about this tall. And she couldn't tell I'd stood up. She thought I was still sitting there on my little stool. A difference that makes no difference is no difference. I didn't invent that but write that down. A difference that makes no difference is no difference. If you sing stand up, stand up for Jesus and nobody can tell you stood up, it's a waste of time. If we claim to be children of God, but we dress like the Egyptians and we talk like the Egyptians and we date like the Egyptians and we do business like the Egyptians and we value the things the Egyptians value and we define success the way the Egyptians define success. Guess what everybody thinks we are? Egyptians. If we're going to have the, the proper way to see ourselves and make our choices and define success and define happiness, we're going to have to do a, a, a cognitive shift. That's a change in the way you think. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Now, how does transformation take place? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You change the way you think, you change the way you live. When you start defining things differently, success and happiness and commitment and love, in marriage, once we have a different set of definitions, just the simple idea that this world is not my home, I'm just passing through, is a phenomenal change. 
because I'm a spiritual creature in a physical world. Now, Moses makes this change and ends up being one of the greatest servants for God ever because the first time he left Egypt, he leaves Egypt because he's scared of the Pharaoh. The next time he leaves Egypt, he leaves because the Pharaoh's scared of him and begs him to go and loads him up with gold. Go to, go to the book of Hebrews. The Hebrew writer really, really kind of knocks a home run with this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. This is the mindset. This is the change I want us to have and explore as we go through the next couple of weeks on developing a, a, a spiritual self-identity. Verse 24 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, now that's different than what it said in Genesis when he was grown. That means chronologically and physically. This is about maturity. By faith, when, when Moses matured, when Moses grew up, something happened with his faith. By faith, when Moses became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You see that fundamental identity shift? Hey, you're Pharaoh. No, I'm not. Hey, aren't you? The no. You will not label me with that label. I am not. Her son. I'm a child of God. I'm one of the Hebrews. I'm one of the Jews. I'm one of the Israelites. How many times do we get caught trying to fit in? How many times do we get caught trying to conform to their pattern? How many times do we get caught trying to identify as a Republican, a Democrat, a socialist, an activist, of this fan or that fan when our identity is not about any of those labels? In fact, if you read what Paul says to the early church, there's neither slave, nor free, nor Jew, nor Greek, nor barbarian, nor Scythian. We've labeled ourselves to death in the church. We create special programs for the youth, for the teens, for the college, for the singles, for the middle marriage, for the singles again, and for the elder. It's not what does this church do for a demographic. It's what does this demographic do for the church. We've created a shop culture. And I'm going to go to the church that meets the needs of my label. And Paul said, if you're a member of the church, you're a member of the body. And you don't have a label. You know, no, nowhere in the New Testament, there'll be a, a, a meeting of the Scythians today. All non-Scythians are welcome to me. They didn't divide the church with subgroups. If you were a barbarian or a Scythian, a slave or a free, a Jew or a Greek or a male or a female, you were part of the body. And your identity was, I don't fit with that group, I fit with God. I'm a part of the body. By faith, when Moses became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses said, you will change my label. I'm a spiritual creature in a physical world. Quit calling me a son of this planet. It's not my home. I live here now temporarily, but, but it's not all that there is. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Moses made a choice and said, you know what? I'll, I'll suffer 
identified as one of God's children before I'll enjoy all these pleasures and not be identified with God's children. Discipline. Real discipline. is Choosing between what you want most and what you want now. And if you get your label wrong about who you are, then, then what this world has to offer is very, very tempting. In fact, we get lured into, we've got to have this, and got to do that, and got to go there, and it's what we want now. And it distracts us from what we want most. And Moses simply had, I will I'll suffer affliction. I'll be punished, I'll be beaten, I'll be tortured. And I won't participate in those pleasures because I'm choosing between what I want most and what I want now. Verse 26 is a continuation of this sentence. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt for he looked for his reward. When you look at Moses' value system, He says, I'll take being reproached for the sake of God, and that is more valuable to me to be identified with God than all the riches the Egyptians have to offer. And do you understand how rich the Egyptians were? Unbelievable. Wealth and power and might. They control the world. And Moses said, if, if I've got to choose between their stuff and my identity as one of God's people, the reproach of Christ or the riches of, of this world. He, he esteemed that label as more valuable as greater riches. What's your value system? Have we had our values so skewed that, that we want to be our, our kids to be popular? We want our kids to be successful according to their rules? We want our families to have these labels rather than just one label, I'm a Christian. Now understand, there's nothing wrong with being a Christian being rich. There's nothing wrong with being a Christian having nice things. It's just that the Christianity defines you and defines how you use the things. The things don't define you. Does that make sense? Verse 27, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Moses leaves Egypt dressed like a palace boy. They call him a prince. The, the girls call him an Egyptian. The next time Moses walks into Egypt, he's dressed like a shepherd. He has a staff. And the next time he leaves Egypt, it's not because he's afraid of Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh's afraid of him. And he says, we're going to leave, we're going to the wilderness, we're going to worship our God. And he can't stop it. I don't think we should be offensive. I don't really think we should be that aggressive. This business of apologizing for what we believe in, this business of political correctness, I'm sorry if you're offended, I dress like a shepherd. This is who I am. This is who my father is. You're not my mother. You don't give me the labels. You don't give me my value. You don't give me my success. And the idea of, of cognitive spiritual development 
is changing the way we think, seeing ourselves as spiritual creatures in a physical world, because as a spiritual creature, some of these things don't touch me. James chapter 1, verse 13. When you're tempted, don't say I'm tempted by God, because God doesn't tempt anybody, can't be tempted by evil, but each one of us is tempted by our own desires, and we're drawn away and enticed. If I define myself as part of this world, then I'm going to want the things of this world, and the things of this world can tempt me. But if I define myself as a child of God, and I'm a spiritual creature, then the things that I want have a spiritual focus, and it makes me almost temptation-proof. Because what you want, how you think about the two different categories, changes your value system. And your value system has a drastic effect on the choices you make. Um, I've got a buddy who's a pilot. He reads the FAA crash reports. I ask him, do you mark them out of the phone book? It sounds kind of morbid to me, you know, to, to do that. But, it, but he says, if you read an FAA crash report, they identify two things, internal hazards and external hazards. Something going on with the pilot, and something happens in the plane or outside the plane, and when internal hazards and external hazards have an intersection, you have a, a tragedy. By the way, this is the same way people get killed rock climbing. Internal hazards meet external hazards. James says you have an internal hazard, the things that you want, and they run into the external hazard, the ability to fulfill a temptation, and that brings forth sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Does it matter what you think about stuff? Does it matter how you think about it? Well, I hope in the next couple of lessons we can explore and maybe give some motivations for changing the way we think. First step is having a spiritual self-identity. If we define ourselves as children of God, that's the place to start. I'm a spiritual creature in a physical world. Second place is if I claim to be one of God's children, does anybody else know the difference? Because a difference that makes no difference is no difference.